Before we get started, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these uh, people, this body that you have assembled, a piece of your body, Lord, over which you are the head. Father, give us grace, give us new understanding, give us uh, the ability to see you in a different way. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in this chapter here about Jesus walking on the water. This is a very famous passage. It's the only, uh, or actually the, the um, passage right before it is the only one that is recorded, the feeding of the uh, large group, the 5,000, which really wasn't 5,000. I don't know if you guys remember that. It was probably 15, 20, or 25,000 people altogether that Jesus fed. And there were 12 basketfuls of what was left over from the uh, loaves and fishes, if you guys remember that story. That is the only event that's uh, recorded in all four Gospels. It is a key turning point in what's going on in the story that Matthew is telling. And this event about Jesus walking on the water is recorded in three of the Gospels, and it's tied directly to that passage. The big idea this morning that I hope everyone can really grasp is this idea. Seeing Jesus for who he really is changes everything. Seeing Jesus for who he really is changes everything. Three things that I'm hoping that you're going to get out of this today. One, I want you to see where we are in the big story of Matthew. Connecting some dots, showing the as Matthew tells the story of Jesus, his life, and what he's doing, what his plans are. I hope that you can see and understand this passage in particular in a new way. And I hope that the information that we go through today connects to our hearts and drives us to a new appreciation for Jesus and moves us to see, love, worship, and hope in our Savior in a different way. Can we do that together? See, that was good. You guys did this. I like a little audience particip participation. Uh, all of life could use a few more ameners out there. Okay? So if you feel so moved as we go through Scripture, and there's going to be a lot of Scripture references today, it's going to be a, a quick flyover of several passages, then I, if the truth of what we are going connects to your mind and it connects to your heart, why do we stifle that? We want things to be done decently in order, but shouldn't we praise God? Thank you. I knew I could trust Jim for that. Let's go take a look at our passage together. Is that okay? We're in uh, Matthew Chapter 14, in verse 22, I'll read the passage. Immediately, we have a problem. Because he said immediately, means he's referencing something that happened before. But we're going to pause, we'll hold off on that, we're going to leave the tension there for a second, we're going to go back to that. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds 
And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when Jesus, sorry, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is your command, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. That's our passage. Let's start to unpack this a little bit. In verse 22, we talked about immediately. Immediately, Jesus did something. And this references the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000 is a really interesting passage. And uh, Jeremy did a great job uh, last week going over this uh, passage in an, in an overview sense. But I want to lay a couple of core other pieces of information within this that this was a turning point in Christ's ministry. At this point, we're about two years into three years of Jesus' ministry on earth. This is essentially the pinnacle, the peak, of the public's response to Jesus and their enthusiasm for him. After this point, two things happen. Largely, the public, and especially the religious leaders, reject Jesus We've already seen that progression happening, that the people are turning uh, hard hearts towards Jesus. And Jesus is already starting to close down how he talks to the crowds. He's shifted from teaching about the kingdom in plain, open language to parables. We've already seen that. He's now going to shift away again from not necessarily having the same kind of public ministry. And this, at about this two-year point, his ministry shifts more inward to those that are his direct followers, to the disciples, to training them. It doesn't mean that there aren't other times that there are large crowds. In fact, there's another uh, time coming up where Jesus feeds another very large crowd of probably 20,000 people again. But it is the turning point in the story where the public ministry of Jesus starts to shift and the crowd's response starts to shift away from Jesus. Their hearts are hard. They're rejecting him. Who is this man? Can anything good come from Nazareth? What is he? Isn't he just that carpenter's son? Don't we know him? Didn't we see him when he was a kid? Who, who could he be? Really and truly, part of the reason for what happened here and why Jesus took radical action to say immediately he made the disciples get in the boat. And that is a core piece of this information that we're looking at. Jesus compelled, Jesus constrained the disciples get in the boat. Okay? There was not an option. And it was because the people 
were turning the corner in their own thinking. The people said, you're, you're sounding like the Messiah. There's some things about you that sound like the Messiah. And we get benefits by being near you. You feed us. You meet our human needs. And they decided at this point, if we look at the other, it's not so much connected here in our story in Matthew, but if we look at the other parallel passages, you can see that they're conspiring to make Jesus king on the spot. And Jesus doesn't want that to happen yet. It's not his time. Jesus knows that his path is to the cross and to suffering. It's not to the whims of the people that want their bellies filled. It's a very serious thing that's happening here. And Jesus is saying that there's almost a mob. The crowd turns from having their bellies filled to almost a mob that is going to make Jesus king by force. And so he tells them, get in the boat. No, really, get in the boat. Go on ahead of me. There's one other thing that's interesting here, and it's contained in one of the other gospel accounts, and that is that the disciples still didn't really truly understand the miracles of what was happening, what Jesus was doing with the feeding. How did the miracles happen? What did it mean? Why was Jesus doing this? What was the crowd saying? Why was Jesus rejecting the crowd? They actually were arguing among themselves, according to other passages in John and in Mark, especially John. They didn't understand Now, if there was about to be a riot, and you're the disciple, and you see your master is about to be in danger, do you want to leave the master? Do you want to leave him to the crowd of 20,000, 25,000 people? Nope. Could Jesus handle it? Of course. But the disciples rightly didn't understand fully what was happening, and they were concerned for Jesus. They were arguing amongst themselves. They had doubts. They didn't get what the miracles were, and Jesus said, get in the boat. The people wanted the earthly and political reign of Jesus. They understood the significance of who he was to a degree, but they wanted to twist that into what they wanted at that moment, what they wanted, not what God's plan was, but what they wanted. They wanted a political king, one that would meet their physical needs, not a suffering servant who would provide for their ultimate spiritual needs and more. We continue on that Jesus dismisses the crowds. That's a miracle in and of itself. Jesus somehow supernaturally says this crowd that's been fomenting to try and make him king, you're done, bye. And then somehow he does remove himself to go pray alone. One of the other ways that we see that this is a shift, this story is a shift, is that Jesus had sent out the disciples to go do missions work, to go to spread his name, go from town to town, tell them about the kingdom. But at this point, the disciples have come back. In fact, they have just come back. If we look again at the other gospel accounts of this story, they have come back. They've done that job. They've spread the news. And Jesus was taking the disciples. His initial plan 
why he's in a desolate place was to go away and pray with those disciples who had returned. And the crowds figured out where they were and still came. And so Jesus continues on with what his initial plan was, which was to go away and pray. Anytime Jesus wants to go away and pray, that's a clue that something big is happening. Jesus understands that something significant is happening within the plan of God and the revelation of what is happening. Shifts are happening. Things are happening. There's also the side of Jesus that in his humanity, he was tired. The disciples were tired. They just returned. They just helped feed all of these people. So Jesus goes on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land. The disciples had gotten in the boat, and they were going to row across the uh, northern side of the Sea of Galilee, and probably the whole trip was four to six miles they were trying to cut across. The other gospel accounts feed us a little bit more information that essentially they were rowing into the wind, and about three or four miles from shore, they're completely stuck. All of their effort rowing against the wind is getting them no progress. The wind itself was so strong that the waves are starting to bash. It's obviously a storm, which may also mean one of the reasons, a clue as why Jesus had to tell them to get in the boat. These are seasoned fishermen. They probably saw a storm on the horizon. You want us to do what, Jesus? No, I'll take care of things. Get in the boat. They're stuck. They're suffering. They're rowing. In the fourth watch of the night, that means Jesus did make it away. He's been praying. The fourth watch of the night is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. for us, how we keep track of time. It's the middle of the night, oh, dark 30. Jesus saw them, in one of the other accounts, Jesus saw them miles away from where he was up on the mountain. He saw them. Not physically. He couldn't physically see them miles and miles away in a little rowboat out on the sea. But he knew what was happening, and he saw them, and he knew exactly where they were. And he came to them, walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him, they were frightened. We would be too. By this point, they're exhausted. They've been rowing against the wind, for five to seven hours or more. Maybe 12. We don't know exactly. And here is a ghost, something that they don't understand. Jesus was on the shore. We're out here. We've been rowing. What's that? They were terrified. They said it's a ghost. They cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying... Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. A lot of Bible commentaries or commentators like to make a point, and I think it is significant that we notice this. The language that Jesus is using doesn't fully come across in English in our translation where it says, it is I. This is an I am statement. This is... The same wording that's used to say, I am. It's me. I 
am. In many ways, this is still echoing, just as Jeremy said, that Jesus is the greater Moses. As things were revealed to Moses, who are you, God? He said, I am. Jesus had compassion on them. He saw them from a long ways off. He knew what they were doing, what they were struggling with, what was going on, and Jesus had compassion. He said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Interestingly, all three gospel accounts uh, of this story pick a different emphasis. All of them talk about how Jesus walked on water, but only in Matthew is it recorded this piece of information about Peter. In Mark, the emphasis is on the fact, well, we're going to get there in a second. Part of the emphasis from Mark is that Jesus intended to pass by them. That's the words that's used. This means that Jesus was going to either come alongside or maybe he intended to to literally come alongside the boat and go past them for some reason. And that's a question I'm going to leave open for a second. Why would Jesus want to walk past them? We have this section here on Peter. Matthew included it for a reason. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. This is like, if you are at all connected with Christianity, you've probably heard this story. And there's been thousands and thousands of sermons that have been preached on what the individual parts of this story mean. But it's only Matthew that includes it, which means there's an emphasis that Matthew's putting on here, but it's not the focus of what the story is. This part about Peter is a blip in the entire story of what Matthew is trying to uh, get across to us as we see Jesus in this way. Somehow, Jesus being on the water, walking to them, knowing where they are, showing his authority and how he calms the storm, how he pulls Peter back out of the water again, as he started to sink. Some way that he shows his compassion, somehow way that he shows his authority over the elements affects the disciples. And ultimately and truly, and where we're going to really look at, I'm going to come back to Peter in this, in this story uh, more about him, but I'm going to tell you the end, the real point, what Matthew has been driving at. It is that whatever the disciples saw that day, whatever they witnessed of the Lord walking on the water and his authority, his power that was displayed before them, changed everything. And it's here in the last two verses. Sorry, the last verse. And those in the boat, not just Peter, those in the boat, all the disciples, worshipped him. This is not the first time 
that the disciples have seen the power of Jesus. They just saw him feed all these people. It's not the first time they've been on a boat in a storm that Jesus was sleeping through and they lost their minds and said, what are you doing asleep? And Jesus said, well, I'm here. Stop. And the winds and the storm ceased and they marveled at it. They've seen him deal with spiritual realities, cast out demons, heal every kind of disease. This is not the first time that they've seen his authority. It is the first time that they worship him. It is the first time that whatever they saw him do this day caused them to say in their worship, to confess in their worship, you are the son of God. That's the emphasis of this whole passage. That's the point that Matthew wants us to see. This is before Peter gives his confession of Christ. This is everything. What they saw, when they saw the real Jesus, and we don't know all the details because it seems weird Jesus is repeating aspects of other miracles that he's already done, but something happened that day. And they worshiped him. They saw him in a new way, and they understood him in a new way. This is unheard of. Remember that Matthew is speaking to a Jewish audience. For Jews to worship a man was unthinkable. For Jews to equate a man with God was unthinkable. So that's why our main point in coming to this, the big idea is that seeing Jesus for who he truly is changes everything. Everything about our worship, everything about our life, everything about who we serve, everything about what the future holds, everything in what we hope for is changed because of who he is. Seeing Jesus is an interesting theme now that we've kind of worked our way through this passage a little bit. Seeing Jesus is an interesting theme in Scripture, and I want to actually pull out a few passages quickly about what this is, how often we see these concepts of seeing Jesus come up. In 2 Corinthians 3.16, Paul is describing how the Jews have a veil over their heart. They're not able to really see and understand at that time because of their hardness of heart who Jesus is. But he gives some more text, some more context, some more information. He says, now the Lord, sorry, but when one turns to the Lord, in in 2 Corinthians 3.16, when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, behold. What does behold mean? See. Not just see, but really see. 
to understand what we're seeing. Behold, the face, sorry, when we, let me start over, verse 18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, seeing the Lord, understanding him, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Seeing Jesus is connected with being transformed into what we are seeing. That's what the journey of sanctification is. Growth in Christ, becoming more like Christ, is not tied to do more, work harder. Jesus understood the plight of his disciples and he said, take heart. This is the same passage. We're not in charge of our own sanctification alone, but we are transformed by how we see Jesus. In Hebrews 1, uh, 1 and following says, Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his power. Only one amen? One more time. Thank you. Seeing Jesus and seeing what he does, seeing his works, understanding who he is, is so crazy, it's so monumental, it's so great that we're told even the angels want to look in, look in to see and understand more what God's plan is. We read this in 1 Peter 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels Long to look, to see, to understand. Ephesians 1.15 and following says, this is Paul's prayer. Paul is praying for the Ephesians. This is the opening of the letter to the book, the church in Ephesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, having the eyes of your heart enlightened to see Jesus. Seeing transforms us. Understanding who he is causes us to confess, you are the son of God, and we worship him. How? How do we see Jesus? Can we see Jesus right now? Kind of. Not really. Scripture says, in a, in a way, we see in a mirror dimly, right? Soon we'll see face to face. We don't really see Jesus. But I'm going to suggest to you four ways, really quickly, four ways that we can see Jesus right now. One way is that we can see Jesus through his creation. We can look at the world, and this is right out of Romans 1. We can look at the world and see Jesus because Jesus is the one who created the world and the universe, and we just read that he upholds the universe by his power. Do you know how many galaxies there are? Not stars, not planets, galaxies. Science, the best scientists with the best equipment that we've had, which, by the way, if you don't know what the James Webb telescope is, go home today and look that up. Look at what this new telescope out in space has seen. It's recent. It's within the last two years, okay? It blows anything that... You guys remember Hubble? Raise your hand if you know the Hubble telescope and you've seen images. Forget it. The James Webb telescope is seeing things that have never ever, 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 ever been seen. It blows away anything that Hubble has ever taken pictures of. Do you know what gravitational lensing is? When the mass of galaxies are so great, they bend the light of whatever is behind them, around them, and it's an intergalactic um, magnifying glass. The gravity and the, of the, the, the mass is so great of those galaxies that it bends light and it actually lets scientists see even further than a normal telescope. It's like adding another lens to the telescopes that we have. We can actually see stuff that's behind other stuff. Do you know how many, the best guess, how many galaxies there are? 200 billion. Or, because we don't really know, scientists say the range is between 200 billion and 2 trillion. Somewhere in there. Romans 1. I forgot to write this passage down says the things that can be known are clearly visible. God's invisible attributes. Let's just get there really quick.
in verse one, or chapter one, verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for in his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. But we can see the aspects of the invisible attributes of God, that he's a God of order, not a God of chaos, that he upholds it by his power, that he's made things to be, uh, or let's even infer something. God had a desire to accomplish something, and he did it. God has desires. We can understand that he does that. And we are made in his image. We are a people who are desirers and therefore doers. We build things. That's in response to who God is. That's because we're made in his image. These are the kind of the invisible attributes, things that we can infer from just looking at creation and understanding how great that is. Let me give you the second way that we can see Jesus. Jesus is the head of the what? Yes, more right answer. It is the church. He is the head of the church, but there's a very specific word I'm looking for. Body. Thank you. Jesus is the head of the body. What is that body? Now say it. The church. Look around. You're seeing Jesus' body. This is his church. He is the head. We saw it right in the same passage in Ephesians far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body. We can understand who Jesus is and how he works and what he does by understanding who his church is and what they do and how they serve and how they love, how they care for people. how we want to bring the gospel of good news to people, how we want to care for people that are hurting, how we want to save people from being exhausted in their religious duties because they think that that's what will please God. The third element that we could say, how do we know, how do we see Jesus, how do we know him more, well, how do you know someone that may be from the past? How do we know things from history? It was written down. What was written down? The things that they did. We're doing it right now. We can see Jesus because Matthew wrote it down. He's telling us a story. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And we can get a picture of who Jesus is and what his mission is and what he did for us and what his grace is because we can look and see what did Jesus do. It was recorded for us. We know him by what he did. What did he do? What did he do? If you have your Bible, turn to Romans um, 5, please. One of the few times I'm going to make you switch to a new, a new passage. 
Turn to Romans 5, because Paul can't get it out fast enough. He can't express all of the things that Jesus did, and he trips over his own tongue in trying to spill the glories of what Jesus has done on our behalf. I'm going to read this passage, starting in verse 1. I want you to listen to how many times Paul says, and not only that, and also this, and yet more this, and those kind of words. You with me? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, poof, the first thing that Jesus did for us, he justified us by faith. We can have a right relationship with God because of what Jesus did. Through him, we have also also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We don't have to remain prostrate. We don't have to live in fear. We don't bow our heads out of some uh, sense that God will be capricious or angry or change his mind. We stand boldly. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in his sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who has been given to us. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death, by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also... In God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have more than that also, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Turn to Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We are co-heirs the Spirit himself, sorry, verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Verse 31, what did Jesus do? 
What did Jesus do? This is the record. What did Jesus do? How do we see him? What was recorded? What did Jesus do? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for me and for this side of the room. Sorry. Jesus is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is what Jesus did. This is why we look at this prayer, that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that you may know Paul tells us the purpose that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. The fourth way that we can see Jesus is in hope. It's in hope for when we will see him face to face. It won't just be the recorded aspects as wonderful and as great as they are. But when, after Jesus in his kingdom has set everything right, we will see him. In the book of Revelation, Oh, wait. Revelation? What does that mean? Revelation. Seeing Jesus. Revelation 1 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John saw. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
That's Jesus. What? That's Jesus in his glory. That's a Jesus that we know. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. We live in this hope. That's the opening of Revelation, the close of Revelation, Revelation 22.1. It's the last chapter. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. Verse 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more and there will be no need of light, of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with him forever and ever. We will see his face. This concept of seeing Jesus while we're here, it's what transforms us as we understand him more and more and more. It is the glories of Christ himself. We get this Jesus ultimately, powerfully, as our brother as co-heirs with him in his kingdom, adopted by God into his family, no longer enemies, but friends. Not just friends, his children. Let's go back to Peter. Peter catches a lot of flack. People like to sometimes mock the disciples. Why didn't they get it? Why didn't they understand? Guess what? If we were in their shoes at that time, as God's progressively revealing who he is, he didn't reveal it all at once. If we knew what they knew, we would still take the same actions. We would have the same understanding. We, we wouldn't. We, the whole plan hasn't been revealed yet. The things that I just read that we get because we have the whole Bible, the whole word, they haven't seen those things. They haven't experienced those things. This is still part of what Matthew is describing the story of Jesus as. Peter especially takes a lot of flack. And as I was reading through this, there's too much that uh, Peter gets blamed for. Peter was the first to speak up in meetings. He was sometimes rash, but he was bold, and he wanted to take action. He wanted to live for his Savior. We should never shame those things. We need to do it in wisdom. But what about 
Peter that denied Christ. Did you know that Peter was the only one that was close enough to Jesus within the enemy's camp in order to be at a place where he could deny Jesus? All the other disciples had already fled. How's that for changing your perspective? He tried to stay as close to Jesus as he could, but in his flesh he did fail. He was scared. We see the same thing going on here. Same ideas. Peter is bold. However, it's not really a shock to us. Peter's in a boat. We've been rowing for seven hours. We're exhausted. Here's Jesus. He said, take heart. I want to take heart. Jesus, if you want me to be with you, tell me. I know that I can be with you. I don't know what you're doing, but I want to be there. It's way better than being in here with these other guys. We've been arguing for seven hours, and we've been rowing for seven hours. We don't understand what's going on. Can I just be with you? Jesus said, come. Jesus is walking on water. Breaking the rules of the universe. Peter walks on water, breaking the rules of the universe. It's called supernatural for a reason. And then something that is normal in our human experience happens. Peter didn't fail. Can I just put that out there? Peter didn't fail. Normal human emotions about concerns for real, actual danger. I'm standing on water. The storm is raging around me. Look at the sides of that wave. That's normal to have those fears. Jesus said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? That's not shaming Peter. That's a statement of compassion. You don't actually understand everything. It's almost rhetorical. Did you forget who you were with? You've seen all the things that we're doing? You've seen all the miracles? Did you forget who you were with? And he did. He did forget for a minute. But guess what? It wasn't the measure of his own faith that kept him on the water. Because you know what? It was God's power that all the miracles happened. It's through God's power, not something that Peter drummed up within himself to say, I believe really hard. It's what God was doing through Peter. And God allowed Peter to experience, and he started to sink into the water. And what did Peter do? He cried out. Jesus, save me. And that's the same thing that we should do every day. Every day. When the things of life rise up against us, when we're distracted, when we think that politics is destroying life, when we have squabbles, when we have fights, when we have a bad day at work and we're distracted, who is this Jesus? What has he done? How have we seen him? We should remind ourselves that Peter saw imperfectly at this point. We have all of God's word. We looked at how we can see Jesus, the glories of Jesus. We don't have an excuse for saying we didn't know. 
Who is this Jesus? How do we experience him? How do we see him? We say, Jesus, save me. That's it. We can strive in our rowboat, in our religiosity, in having our good works outweigh the bad works. We can still try to please God in our own strength. Is that going to get us very far? No, they were stuck, pinned to that location in the lake. That's the way we are without Jesus. But Jesus saw, he had compassion, he came alongside, he revealed who he was. He allowed Peter to see and experience it in a new way. And Peter responded, he cried out and said, Lord Jesus, save me, save me. Ultimately, this is where we were going with our whole sermon this morning. When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now I can't remember if it was Mark or John. Adds one more detail to it. It was Mark. He adds one more detail. The wind didn't just cease. They were immediately at their location where they had been trying to get to. Jesus' miracle wasn't just walking on the water. It wasn't just saving Peter. It wasn't just having authority over the storm. Immediately, instantaneously, they arrived at their destination, transporter style. I don't know about you, but if I saw all of that, it would affect me. What did they do? They worshipped. They worshipped him. They understood more about Jesus by what they had seen in Jesus, what they had seen him do. And I pray that that is what we do. I pray that our hearts are enlightened. I pray that we will confess what they confess truly. You are the son of God. we go back, I'm going to close with this. If we go back to John 6, in John's account of this, this is after he's walked on water. After the issue with the boat, he goes with the disciples at their new location and the crowds gather around. New boats have come around to take all the people. They've hiked around the other side of the lake. They don't understand it. They're still grumbling. The disciples are grumbling. They don't see what's going on. Jesus is reminding them, you came to get your bellies filled again. But in reality, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. In verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that day. 
turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your glories. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that we have a record of what you have done. We thank you that we can be in hope of seeing your face, of being righteous before you, no longer struggling with sinful flesh, no longer struggling with a sin-cursed world where you and your kingdom have made everything right. Lord, if there are those that do not know you, I pray that they would cry out, Jesus, save me. Lord, if there are those that need to be reawakened to your glorious might and power, the wonders of salvation in you, that you would do that. That we would cry out in confession, save us. Let us worship you for who you are. You are truly the Son of God. Amen.